Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Saket Saraf, co-founder and CEO of Nexla, a data operations platform that's raised over $15 million in funding. Saket, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here, Brett. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO at uh, Nexla. Background-wise, I'm actually an engineer by background, several years working in um, out here in the Silicon Valley area in companies like Nexla and always had the entrepreneurial drive, ended up going to business school, and then did my first company in the mobile advertising at TechSpace, and then went on to start Nexla, which is bringing in together my experience on the compute technology side at NVIDIA and the data experience side in my previous ad tech company. Nice, very cool. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. Is there a CEO and founder that you are studying the most now, and if so, why? So I've been so enamored by entrepreneurship. In fact, I feel like the reason I even moved to the U.S. back in 1999 was I knew that there is a Silicon Valley there and people go and build companies and, you know, bring their ideas to life. And that's what drove me to come here right after my undergrad. So absolutely, I think of like two entrepreneurs, there's different things I admire about different entrepreneurs and I study them. One of them, I would say, was the CEO of NVIDIA where I worked at, Jensen Huang. And I was really impressed and amazed by how deeply Jensen understood the technology and the market that we were in and was was incredible in his ability to go learn and understand every single function of the company. So he had a very deep down understanding of everything from hardware to software to marketing to sales to channels, everything. And I thought that entrepreneur spirit that you have as a founder combined with that deep, deep know-how and the ability to learn and the confidence to sort of take bets is what helped Jensen take NVIDIA from a small company to a public company to a billion-dollar company to a multi-hundred billion-dollar company, all through constant innovation. So I am really admire that. But then if I also look at some other entrepreneurs or founders or CEOs, I find that the more recent trend and driven by Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and then some of the folks like Google CEO is sort of bringing a different style of leadership in the company which is very driven by, you know, the aspect of empathy-driven leadership, aspect of servant leadership, and really putting people at the front and center and how we work with them and how we treat them. And that's another part from a cultural perspective that I really admire about Satya Nadella, the Microsoft CEO, and feel like that's a great place for all of us to learn in how to build a giant company, how to grow a company, but at the same time, take the team, the people, and everybody along with you. Nice. I love that. And could you take us back to, let's say, the year 1999 when you moved to Silicon Valley? What was it like back then? And what was it like for you personally? Like, did your family think you were crazy for moving here? You know, what was that like? I was a computer science grad from IIT Kanpur in India, which was one of the best computer science programs in the country. And for me, the only thing that drove me was 
I want like as complex or difficult a challenge as possible to work. And I was like, this is where all of this is happening. I was fortunate enough to get here. It was not straightforward. I think my family had probably <laughs> seen me as being fairly driven as far as learning. So they were pretty good with that. Silicon Valley itself was an amazing place at the time, and it still continues to be, but it was crazy. I mean, it was a time when people would register a .com domain, raise money, and then immediately start talking about going public, you know? And that craziness was odd and weird in many ways. I had just come out of college and knew nothing about what revenue is and why that matters. And, you know, funnily enough, 99, I come in. And, you know, if you remember, the Y2K bug was just hanging like out there. It's like something big's going to happen on January 1st, 2000, right? Because who knows what will happen to the traffic lights or the bank accounts. Nothing like that happened. But what did happen was in, I think, March or April of 2000, at that time, I had already quit my first job in just three months and gone into straight into a startup. And, you know, we had the major dot-com crash that triggered in April, and we had just raised $3 million right before that as a Series A, uh, which looks small from today's standards, but it was a Series A at the time and ended up going out of business a year later, very, very predictably, actually, in that market. Mm, interesting. And another question for you on that, just because you know, you've know you been in Silicon Valley for so long, so I'd love to find out just more about your view there. So obviously, the media narrative right now is that, you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco is, you know, kind of on the decline, people are moving to Miami or Austin. Are you bullish on the long term standing of Silicon Valley as the leader of innovation? Or do you think that's going to continue to decline? Look, you and I are both in the San Francisco area, and there's a good reason for that. I think what's amazing is that so many more places have understood the importance of investing in technology and innovation. So many more areas have come up. Now, of course, from, um, you know, San Francisco was this one big peak or Bay Area was one big peak and everybody was not even paying attention to technology innovation. Of course, a lot of places are. But I don't think that while that changes the distribution of startups, I think the Silicon Valley, the San Francisco, the Bay Area still holds a very important place in innovation. And this is something that I sort of always wondered why is the case and eventually concluded that there's this sort of two things that help make that happen. One is that there is a very openness of culture with the love of innovation where you can reach out to anybody in the Bay Area who's working on technology. And I have found that people are willing to talk to you. Even when I was exploring my ideas and I met more than 100 people before starting Nexla, and they're all willing to talk. And I felt like there was such a, you know, sort of paid forward mentality, if you say, or, you know, openness to talk to people, saying yes without knowing what is in it for them. And then, you know, I would meet people and say, hey, you know, you should meet that other person. And they would happily make an intro and that person would meet with me. So I think that's one big part of Silicon Valley, which is great and hopefully gets emulated and replicated in other places. And then it's a nice critical mass of experienced people across all functions, whether it's product or marketing or sales, as well as a good set of buyers in this area, right? So you build technology, you can sell to like, you know, hundreds of companies here, even for today, you know, for a lot of technology companies, like even as big as Snowflake, there's a big book of business that runs in the Bay Area. So it's a great place to have that initial product, get that mindset, get that advice and get the initial customers. Now, things have gone remote, people work remotely for sure. But we are seeing some of that actually coming back. I mean, the pendulum swings to one extreme and then it comes back again. 
And right now I'm finding that more and more the people we are hiring are excited to be in office at least once or twice a week, meet with the people they work with, build that relationship of trust that happens when you just sit with people and have a coffee or a drink with them. So I think Silicon Valley and Bay Area and San Francisco will continue to have an important place, but equally importantly, there are so many more places coming up, which is which is nice. More innovation, right? Yep, agreed. Yeah, you know, as we were talking the pre-interview, you know, I recently moved here to the Bay Area. And my you know only regret is that I didn't do this 10 years ago. I think it would have been a very wise decision to have come here you know, 10 years ago. But for my view, this is you know the absolute best place in the world if you want to be a tech founder. Um, you know, the energy here, the investors that are here, the experienced players who've you know brought ideas to market successfully, it's just hard to find that you know quantity and that density anywhere else. So that's my advice to like any of the other founders that I'm speaking to now is just move to Silicon Valley. You know, don't worry about what you read in the media. It's not that bad. It's still the best place to be. Yeah, right on. <laughs> nice. Well, let's talk about the origin story a bit more. So walk us through, you know, how the company started. And then can you give us like the high level pitch on what you do? Yeah. So let's start with the pitch. You know, the mission for the company has been that we want to empower anyone and everyone to work with data. Because so many functions and almost every job that you're doing, you need to look at data, understand data and use it and, and do that effectively. So how do we do that? Our approach to that is, you know, in order to use data or to take advantage of it, you do depend on data engineering to make the data useful or ready to use for you. And we are bringing automation into data engineering. So making it possible for, you know, the real sort of under the hood things like integrating, preparing, monitoring, validating data to be done much more easily in a much more automated fashion so that anybody who wants to work with data can get to it and do it on their own. And that's a big part of what we are doing. And at the same time, I think we are enabling the real experts, the actual data engineers to use our technology as a component of what they're building and then get to things that they want to do faster and easier and much more scalable. Then that takes me back to the origin story of why did we even do this? And we felt in, this is 2014, I had taken my startup Mobsmith to an acquisition and we had gone public in 2014. And that was a good sort of culmination of that journey. I did not particularly enjoy working in advertising business, to be honest. So that's one of the reasons I was like, okay, I want to do something which is much more aligned to my own goals. And data was a big part of AdTech. We were processing over 300 billion records of data a day. My co-founder was running that infrastructure. So the big thing was that, look, the amount of data applications is going to grow tremendously. And even now, I would say that, you know, if we do 10 things where we are using data, we'll probably do 100 in a few years. So what we felt was that more and more people need to work with data. That's a given. Data itself is getting more complicated. Okay, that's understood. So how do those two reconcile? In between that user and that complexity is all the technology of data engineering. If we can make that more intelligent, smarter, more automated, then it becomes possible for more people to work with data. And that was the big driving factor behind saying that, okay, this is a core problem. This is something that everybody in every industry will face and see. And sure enough, today we are you know, delivering our technology and solution to companies across sectors, financial services, you know, it's JP Morgan Chase, pharmaceutical is J&J today, 
you know, in retail and e-commerce, it's like companies like DoorDash and Instacart and all of these amazing companies in, in cybersecurity, Sentinel One. Like these are amazing companies that are today using our technology and applying it to increase their pace of innovation as far as leveraging data. And those are some you know, very impressive logos to land. What's the secret there? You know, how are you landing these you know, big, huge logos as a startup? Because that's always the challenge as a startup is you know, get the big companies to trust in your product and believe in your product. So enlighten us. What's your secret? How are you guys doing it? Oh, absolutely. I think the main reason I would say is that as a second time founding team, we spent the first three years or so really honing down the product and the core problem that we are solving. And the way we approached it, we realized that our technology is able to solve some of the most complex problems out there for which there are almost no solutions. To give an example, right? When when we see how DoorDash uses Nexla, they, you know, we know we all get deliveries from them, right? But to have the data of which store has what products and how many units are available, and that's information that changes multiple times in the day, right? And there's a lot of data behind that. That sort of data connecting to so many different merchants and stores and all that is extremely complex. It takes coding because there's nobody out there with a package solution for that. What we found was that and what our customers found was that Nextla was able to actually automate even that piece and make a shift that work from writing code to being no code and shift that work from the engineers to people who actually know the data, like merchandising teams which means that now you can get to a scale that wasn't possible before. I mean, coding is great, but we all know that it takes a lot of time and effort and maintaining it. You know, if you have to go back to hundreds of such, you know, pieces of data engineering code that you have to maintain, it's very hard. So what the reason we started landing some of these very large customers was we've actually built an enterprise-grade product. We said, how do we handle, for example, you know, hybrid cloud environments? How do we handle, you know, very high security situations like J&J? I mean, we are, we, our product gets used alongside clinical trials data. And that's highly sensitive. So how do we support those things? So we went and solved those problems. We made it possible to do a lot of these things with no code, ease of use. And the enterprises really, you know, when you go to someone and you really appeal to a problem that really matters to them, that's really hurting their business or that's really impacting their opportunity, you know, they will buy. They will look at, they looked at us and they said, wow, you're a really small company. You don't have that much funding. How can we bet our business on you? And you know, we, we worked with them. We earned their trust and it's all been coming along really nicely. And eventually what happens, Brett, is that once a few of the early adopters take a bet, on you, then the others get more comfortable. And actually, I was thinking about one of the questions you'd asked me about the books, and I kind of almost always keep going back to crossing the chasm, right? Mm -hmm. So talking about this, yeah. And where are you guys on that journey of crossing the chasm? That's a great question. In fact, that's a book that I first was bought, actually was the recommended course book at one of the courses I'd taken at Stanford in the Madman Science Program back in 2004. And I feel like, I keep rediscovering the layers and layers of interpreting that book every year. <laughs> okay, so where are we in crossing the chasm? That's a great question. I would say that we're still not in the mainstream yet. You know, we are still in those early adopters, those early believers who really care about a problem and, you know, are willing to take a bet on a solution that makes sense. I think that in certain markets, for example, within the broader 
e-commerce retail world, we've, I think, gotten to the other side because we have so much evidence of companies using us that, you know, even the, you know, the mainstream is saying, yeah, you know, I, I can go work with you because I see all the other companies that are using your product. I think I'm ready for that. So that's, I would say, like an alternative way of thinking about product market fit in a way. And then in other sectors, it's happening slowly. People are saying that, oh, you you are solving this hard problem at this big company. You know, you're doing this for pharmaceuticals. That's amazing. You know, I think we can look at you as well. Got it. Super interesting. And for these early adopters, are they going out and searching for a data operations platform? Like, is that an established category? Or what category are you currently in? And, you know, what category does Gartner place you in? Because I saw you guys did win the Cool Vendor Award, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one thing if I can say about the data space is that we've, as a as an industry, you know, confused our customer base with terminology right, left, and center, okay? With data operations, with data mesh, data fabric, data products, you know, all that sort of stuff. And interestingly, every one of these terminologies was created to address or solve for a certain market challenge, right? Now, Gartner actually places us as a cool vendor within the data fabric segment. The data fabric segment is about technologies that are leveraging metadata or the underlying information from data systems to make the regular, you know, data operations easier. You know, if, for example, making it easier to integrate with data. How do we make it more intelligent and capable? We auto-generate connectors. You know, that's a big deal. Every tool out there you know, has a list of connectors it can it contains and that they have built and optimized. But you go try and go beyond that, you know, you have to wait on them to do the development. Using metadata, applying the data fabric sort of approach means that, you know, that's a non-problem. You know, why some of these companies use us is because nobody else has a solution to connect to that uniquely complicated enterprise system that they have. And with the next lab, they can just go use that out of the box. So I think we would sort of from a technology approach, we abide by the intelligence, like unlearn from the system, observe the information, and then automatically try to do things, which is a data fabric approach. From a collaboration perspective, we do create these entities called next sets, which are data as a product sort of entity that allow collaboration. So we certainly do that. And then from an overall operations perspective, it's all about bringing scale. Can we apply data to hundreds of use cases and do that at scale and be able to do that in much shorter time than we did it before. And, you know, we are sort of enabling that, but it's a combination of the underlying approach, which brings that, for example, uh, at Bed Bath Beyond, they run several thousand data flows on Nextflow, process trillions of records. And the reason that becomes possible is, you know, these underlying components are making it easier. So, you know, for a customer, they are not necessarily looking at a data operations platform. They have a specific need. They are like, in order to deliver groceries from stores, we need this data. You know, how do we solve that? They're thinking of it from that perspective. All, almost always, data is just the means to the end. So it ties down back to some business problem. A JP Morgan is like, how do we bring, you know, machine learning and AI to all parts of our organization and make it easier for people to do that? across lines of business. So usually it's that. And then they, when they look in, they say, oh, I need X, Y, and Z pieces to get there. Mm, makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I commonly hear from founders, especially first-time founders, you know, they're kind of against the idea of 
Gartner and their you know, entire existence. It seems like you took a different approach and you know, you built a relationship with Gartner, I'm guessing. Could you walk us through you know, that process of becoming selected for the cool vendor and you know, just what your overall thoughts are on the importance of analyst firms like Gartner in the enterprise buying cycle? Yeah, see, enterprise buying is putting a lot of, you know, faith and trust in adopting a technology where you put a lot of effort into it, bring that thing in, and you're hoping that it solves your problem, right? And having the trust on technology and the vendor and both of those things, right? So the very important role that analysts are playing in there is sort of helping the buyers of technology know what is out there, what makes sense, right? And then for companies like us to make sure that what we are looking at and how we are approaching a problem is understood and interpreted and communicated. Now, the reason people don't like this is, you know, almost in all situations, we don't like an in-between person, like a broker, if you will. You know, I would love to, you know, buy my house without having to pay a broker in between or, you know, stuff like that. But we also know that they create a very important value of, you know, bringing the two parties together. So I'm not calling Gartner that, but from a knowledge perspective, they are the broker of that knowledge. So the way we worked with Gartner was very early on. We started to just discuss and tell them, hey, we think this is a big problem and we are approaching it in this way. And I have found the Gartner analysts to be extremely high degree of curiosity, intellectual curiosity in understanding what you are doing and how you're solving the problem. So one of the things that helped us was that um, these conversations were done by myself or one of my founders where we could talk at every level of business and technology problem with them. Okay, So our conversations were not you know, at a very high sort of marketing level, if you will, but deeper, you know, at the the technology level. So we found that they were very willing to listen to us. However, like any messaging, it takes multiple iterations and sharing the same thing many times in different angles that helps people finally understand and and build a picture around it. So that's how it happened. It took, uh, um, you know, quite a bit of time over two two to three years of working with analysts and sharing with them, hey, this is what we are seeing on the field. This is the problem that happened. This is how we're approaching it. What do you guys think about that? We think that this old approach that you talked about in this other magic quadrant or market guide, you know, it doesn't work anymore. These are the reasons why. Let me show you a quick demo of how it works. So we, it's all of those things, but it helps them synthesize that information and really see through like, okay, you know, there is something happening here, which we are willing to talk about. And, you know, I think the, like any responsible analyst, they have to feel confident and comfortable about your technology to start to write about it. And it is seen as a validation, you know by the enterprise buyers to say, okay, somebody took a deep look at it, understood that I can, and also understands my problem. Remember, Gartner analysts spend a lot of time working with the technology folks in big enterprises to learn what problems they are looking at. So it's 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 helpful, I would say, from that perspective. But Gartner, you know, I think part of the reasons is that some of these things are very expensive for startups and you have to make a very deliberate decision. Are you willing to invest in that yet or not? And do you think, are there some enterprise deals that you've landed that wouldn't have come if it weren't for the Gartner validation? Attribution is extremely hard, Brett. I mean, in any of these things, I do think that it has helped us at an occasion when somebody's looking at us and saying, hey, you're a small company, how can I trust and how can I buy from you? Are you really better than others? And we say, hey, you know, you are more than welcome to talk to these Gartner analysts and ask them what their independent opinion is because, you know, they have spent a lot of time learning about what we do. And maybe that will help you think through some of these things. So that that way it helps. But I wouldn't clearly attribute like, hey, if 
we didn't have an analyst relationship, we could have done this deal. It's much harder to get to that. Yeah, I guess it's not a consumer buying experience, right? Where they just go to Gartner, then click checkout and the order's done. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so many things influence, right? I mean, it could be your blog post about things. It could be maybe this podcast will influence somebody, right, to go take a look. Oftentimes, you know, in the buying cycle, it's appealing to the right person at the right time. And that's why you have so many places where information is available, ideally. Makes sense. And in terms of the go-to-market motion, you know, are you product-led or is this sales-led? This is uh, sales-led. I mean, we actually took a very deliberate decision building the company that, especially for data problems, if we, you know, create a product that is targeted at, you know, smaller companies, then we will never have the architecture to take on complex, big enterprise problems, right? So we took a decision that will go the hard path, we'll approach the large enterprise and then build the necessary security, you know, infrastructure, you know, architecture and all of that to be able to, you know, solve enterprise-grade problems, but be able to give a very easy interface to that. So that was the needle we're trying to thread. So we went very enterprise first, but with a very easy way for people to try the product and get a workshop and use that. But trust me, it still takes a long time for that to happen. So we are very sales-led in that way. And slowly, we are moving in the direction of certain product-led characteristics in how we are bringing the product to market. So we now have a few partners who are able to bundle Nexla. For example, Oracle NetSuite is a partner of Nexla, and they are able to bundle Nexla with their own NSAW analytics product, right? So we're slowly getting to the place where we are bringing our product, which already is enterprise grade, which already is easy to use, down to both price points and also adoption mechanics that are more friendly to smaller companies. And that's the evolution of our product. So we've gone sort of reverse motion, if you will. Makes uh, sense. the market, yeah. And as I'm sure you've experienced on this journey, going to market with an innovative tech product is not an easy thing to do. What would you say has been your single greatest challenge and how do you overcome that challenge? Yeah, I think especially, and I think that's true for probably all spaces, but data space has so much technology. You know, some of these things have existed for more than 30 years. So I would still say that the biggest challenge becomes you have such little opportunity to get the attention of someone and have them listen to you that getting our message across and creating our differentiation and explaining it to people and having them you know, trust and believe it. When we started first talking about, hey, we're bringing automation to data engineering, it was like, or oh, I can automate my job away. Like, no, no, no. We, you know, like every function out there, automation is going to help do that job better. And that's essential. We can't scale without that. So I would still say that, you know, getting in front of people and sharing our message with them and creating awareness has been one of the hardest challenges. I'm not underestimating the technology challenge, but as product technology people, as founders, we knew how to, you know, work and solve that problem. And the go-to-market even inevitably becomes the bigger challenge that every company has to work on. And it seems like that's you know, a reoccurring pattern that I've seen, at least, you know, with tech founders or you know, engineers. They often seem to have this, I wouldn't say belief, but they operate you know, under this idea that just building a great product is enough. And if they get the technology right, if it's super innovative, you know, that's going to be enough to break into the market and transform the market. But the reality I think they eventually see is that it rarely happens. You do have to have very good messaging, very good positioning, and very good marketing in order to make that happen on top of building a, a great product. Oh, yeah. I mean, always, right? I mean, build it and they will come has been used as a phrase for decades to sort of say that, well, that doesn't really happen, to be honest, right? 
And that's because people have so many options and more and more things kind of vying for their attention. Uh, ultimately, you know, distilling that message and getting in front of people is extremely important. And buying is complex, you know, buying complex enterprise technology that's going to run a big part of your business or operations is not just the same as, you know, going online and buying an iPhone, right? The amount of investment effort risk is much higher. So it does take, you know, deliberate effort to go out there and sell. So, yeah, I mean, again, you know, in an ideal world, we feel like, you know, there should be seamless frictionless marketplaces, but they're hard to get, create. And that's the reality, yeah. And if we zoom out into the future, what's the five-year vision for the company? What do you hope to achieve? And and what's this company going to look like five years from now? Yeah, so we've charted the company journey into what we call as an epic with three different stories that come one after the other. We've first gone at the core data work that happens. You know, no matter what technology you use, you have to ultimately integrate the data. You have to prepare it. You have to monitor it. You have to validate it. That's an essential set of functions that you do. The first thing we've been doing is how to make those things much easier, more scalable, you know, much more approachable to people. Okay, so that's the first part that we have been doing. A byproduct of doing that is we create these logical data entities called next sets. You know, these are, think of them similar to containers for compute, a logical compute entity that makes it easier to do computation jobs. So these next sets are the byproduct of this first phase of the company. Then the next phase is when it becomes easier for people to collaborate around next sets, go find them, connect it to their catalog, exchange the data around, and all of those things. So that brings a second order of capabilities into our product. Some of our customers are already taking advantage of that. But that's the second sort of phase. And then, you know, we go into beyond that. We think that, you know, for example, today, if I have to connect payments to my application, I simply go put in a few lines of code from Stripe, I have to connect SMS or communications, you know, an API or two from Twilio. Eventually for data, it will kind of be like that as well. And we feel that that will be another path that our technology, which is there today, will eventually expose to people is that you're building an application, you need to, you know, read some data, write some data, connect to it, move things around. It can be as simple as making a few lines of code or API or whatever, to do that. And that's kind of eventually where we are headed into. So our vision is that we kind of you know, make it so much easier for people to work with data. We sort of discard or move away from the legacy approaches that have existed that are very limiting, you know, for people like connectors and so on. And that creates a new sort of wave of innovation. And of course, you know, broadly speaking, we are, as I mentioned, you know, starting from the enterprise, but, you know, bringing this to the entire market over time. Nice. I love it. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, I think uh, definitely go follow us or follow me on LinkedIn and come over to our website to hear about what we are doing. And that's the best place to see what's the latest. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story and sharing your vision. It's really exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thank you, Brett. It's an exciting journey and uh, we've been truly enjoying the impact we're creating across so many customers and types of businesses and the issues and challenges that they face with data. Amazing. I love it. Well, thanks again and let's keep in touch. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.